don't look at your condition as your identity. A lot of people who have long-term chronic conditions, that becomes their identity, right? That's not you. It's a temporary version. You can get through it and you absolutely will get through it. This podcast does not constitute medical advice. All changes surrounding medications, diet and exercise should be made in consultation with a professional who can assess your unique health circumstances. Welcome to the Rheumatoid Solutions Podcast with Clint Patterson, helping you to live an easier, healthier, and happier life. I am super excited about my very special guest today. I have watched him on many, many other interviews across multiple platforms for about the last 12 months, and he is one of the leading world experts in the microbiome on uh, 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 gut-derived inflammation, systemic inflammation. And today we're going to talk about all of the underlying causes of rheumatoid arthritis, namely leaky gut, dysbiosis, uh, lipopolysaccharide in the bloodstream and systemic inflammation. And so uh, we're going to cover all that. He is a guru at this. It's Kiran Krishnan. Thanks for joining us. It is my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Now, let's get straight into it. You're a microbiologist, you're a gut health pioneer, and you're wonderful at helping us understand complex topics in a, in a simpler way. Uh, so let's start with the microbiome. What is it? How does it impact us as humans? Yeah. Uh, and in fact, it may be easier if we, if we try to um, illustrate how it doesn't impact, because then there's the answer is zero, right? It impacts everything. Um, so let's talk about the microbiome for a moment. So we, uh, the microbiome really is described as the totality of microbes and their genetic elements as it interacts with the host. And of course, our human shell is the host. Um, now, the totality of microbes refers to bacteria, viruses, fungi, protozoa, all kinds of organisms, right? So we, we have a nice variety of, of organisms that fit in different uh, phylum uh, and different categories within our system. And they exist virtually everywhere in the body, of course, in the digestive tract, on the skin, and in our circulation, in our brains, virtually everywhere. And so when you, when you get to specific ecosystems like the gut or the skin, then we often refer to that as the microbiota. So for people to help with, with terms, they may hear both terms and get confused, like, Wait, microbiome, he just said microbiota. What is the microbiome? So the biome is a whole thing, all of the ecosystems, and the microbiota is a specific ecosystem of a given region, right? And then the other part of the microbiome definition, that the genetic elements, that's where this, this really, really becomes interesting, right? Because um, as we progressed in the understanding of human biology, it became apparent that there are microbes within us, right? Scientists started swabbing and taking samples out of stool and growing microbes, and you consistently see microbes in the stool. So the understanding was, okay, there's probably microbes in the gut helping us digest and break things down. But then you start using high you know, technology like genome sequencing, you start to be able to discern all the different microbes. And what we came to discover is there's microbes virtually everywhere in the body. And, and that they were commensal. They were there, not as an infection, not as a contaminant, but they were meant to be there. 
right? So that understanding was happening. Now, in parallel, another research line was happening that really created a massive amount of confusion. That was the Human Genome Project, right? A lot of people may remember when they had this goal of sequencing the entire human genome. The idea was it was important to sequence the entire human genome because we were going to find a gene for every disease that we deal with, right? The assumption was disease was driven by genetic issues and dysfunctions. So the early estimates were, were that the human genome likely contained 150 to 200,000 functional genes, right? Because we are so complex. We, com we can contain lots of biochemical uh, capabilities, lots of medical um, metabolic capabilities. So we must have a lot of genes. They go through the whole genome, uh, human genome project. As it turns out, we've got about 22,000 functional genes, right? And that sounds like a lot. If you don't know about genetics, but keep in mind that an earthworm has about 32,000 functional genes, right? So we are significantly less sophisticated than an earthworm is. And so then the question became, well, how the hell do we do all the things we do, right? If we barely have enough genetics to get by, that's when the, the parallel stream started to come about. The studies on the microbes in the human body and then the genomics and the lack of genomics in the human body that's when the human microbiome project started. The, uh, the uh, hypothesis was, okay, if we don't have enough genes, maybe we house microbes that have genes that conduct the vast majority of our functionality. So this is where the microbiome begins. And it's this understanding that is really important for people to grasp, because then you start to realize that the majority of our code to function as a human comes from microbes not from us, right? So if we lose those microbes, if we don't have some of those microbes, if they die off because of our choices and behaviors, we also lose their genes. We also lose those codes. We also lose those capabilities. And so it compromises our ability to be human. And unless we, in, we encompass and incorporate and, and really take care of our microbiome, we become less and less human as we go along. And we become less and less adapted to existing in the world that we live in today. So that's the microbiome in a nutshell. And because of that, it affects everything, right? The microbiome, and, and here's a very important way to think about the microbiome. It's an ecosystem, right? And this ecosystem through the course of evolution has designed to be a symbiotic type of relationship with its hosts, right? We provided a home, a very elegant home, biologically an elegant home, and they do a lot to maintain the home. Now, if we start having an antagonistic relationship with this ecosystem, meaning we expose the ecosystem to things like antibiotics, antimicrobials, you know, processed foods, pe uh, pesticides, herbicides, plastics, all these things that we do so well as humans. As we start exposing our that ecosystem to those uh, negative uh, stimuli, we start creating an antagonistic relationship. The ecosystem starts to dismantle and change from being symbiotic to being pathogenic. Because now the, the ecosystem that supports your functionality actually starts to drive disease, right? So the microbiome and the human 
which are kind of one and the same, have a very interesting spectrum of relationships where in one end, the microbiome is the most protective, supportive thing in your system to the other end where the microbiome becomes the most toxic thing to your system. And the, in the case for people with disease, their microbiomes have leaned all the way to that end where it's the most toxic thing in their system. So most chronic illnesses are driven by a dysfunctional microbiome. Wonderful. Now, that is would that be called dysbiosis, a dysfunctional microbiome? Yeah, it's a very general word for an imbalance of microbes, right? And, and there, there are a few different ways you can describe imbalance. But to me, the most profound way to describe imbalance uh, is an imbalance of microbes that build and, and maintain the gut lining versus microbes that break down and eat away at the gut lining. The moment you have that imbalance, then you have the issue of chronic low-grade inflammation and leaky gut and all that, which I'm sure we'll jump into. So that is that dysbiosis that really moves you towards disease or allows you to have resilience and health. Wonderful. Just as we were speaking about before we hit record here, this 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 spectrum of of content that that you have to talk on this topic is so vast. My challenge is to try and uh, keep this on as most relevant as possible and not become my own uh, passion and, and education session. All right. So to to keep it to uh, my audience's interest the most. Let's go to specifically the gut, because I know that you've spoken on many platforms about the oral microbiome and how that impacts SIBO and other things. We might even get there, but let's go to the colon and the microbes that we have in our colon and talk about dysbiosis of the colon, because what the studies have shown is that folks with rheumatoid arthritis have dysbiosis in their large bowel and that the degree of dysbiosis correlates to severity of their rheumatoid arthritis. The more dysbiosis, the more joint pain. So what could be happening there and what sort of things, uh, you know, what, what would it look like, a dysbiotic colon? Yeah. So dysbiotic colon would, would typically be one that has low diversity meaning that the number of viable organisms tends to be lower than it should be. Um, and then, so that's one factor. The second factor is low levels of what we call keystone species. These are really important species that not only maintain diversity and balance within the microbiome, but then they also produce byproducts that are incredibly important for the host and for the host's immune system. Right. And, and we'll dig into the immune system and the microbiome because this becomes super relevant for a condition like rheumatoid arthritis. So loss of diversity, loss of keystone species, those are the two profound, most profound factors in a dysbiotic colon. And we could talk about how that happens yeah. and why it happens. Right. Uh, but what it results in is, number one, a lack of compounds that are needed for the immune system to function properly, a lack of compounds that are needed to manage inflammation in the body, uh, an inability to break down undigested food and convert it into really important metabolites that the immune system uses that you know our bodies need for repair and uh, mechanisms as well. And then finally, it also leads to leakiness in the gut, which means the, the lining of the uh, of the intestine is permeable. And when that lining becomes permeable, then you start to leak in 
a number of toxins and things that can generate massive amounts of inflammation, right, within the body. Now, in the case of leakiness in the gut, the moment you start getting leakiness in the gut, the, the inflammation first starts in the lining of the gut, right? So if, if people think about the lining of their intestines as a couple of important structures, right? So you've got the lumen. The lumen is basically the tube uh, where the food goes through. It's in a hollow tube, essentially. Then the lining of the tube, this inner surface of the tube is made up of a mucosal layer, right? So there's mucus in there and, and there's, a, there's a, a sizable component to that mucus layer. There's two components of the mucus layer. There's mucin one, where all the microbes are swimming around in that top mucus layer. There's mucin two, where the microbes aren't present. Uh, they don't migrate into that layer. That's really a safety zone for the lining cells that make up the intestinal, um, the intestinal barrier. And then, of course, you come down and you have the intestinal barrier uh, cells as well. Now, keep in mind that the intestinal barrier is really interesting because it's the last barrier that separates something from truly being inside the, of the body, right? So you can consume something, and we have this misconception that if we put it in our mouths and we swallow it, it's in the body. But it's actually not in the body yet, right? Because your digestive tract is a tube that's open on both ends. So things can move right through and not actually enter the body, which is circulation. In order for something to enter circulation, it has to go through those mucosal layers pass the intestinal cells, and then enter into circulation. So the intestinal cells are the final barrier before something actually enters into your blood, right? Given that they're that important of a barrier because they're protecting you from all these unwanted things that, that may enter your system, given how important they are, it's really quite curious that they are just one cell thick as a barrier, right? One human cell thick. That's not a very thick barrier. But the reason they are that way is because the intestines, both the small and the large, have to be selectively permeable, meaning that they have to let certain things through. In the small intestine, for example, they have to let through nutrients, right? That's where you absorb a lot of your nutrients, your proteins, your carbohydrates, your vitamins, and so on. Same thing in the large intestines. You do absorb nutrients, not from breaking down the food, but from the microbes fermenting the food in the gut. So the single cell layer is a barrier nonetheless, but it is a dynamic barrier in that it's supposed to know when to open up and allow things through and remain sealed when it's supposed to not allow things through like toxins. Now, the control of when it's open or closed is also done by keystone species and other microbes in the large bowel, right? So if you're low on keystone species, your barrier is going to be mostly open. Things are going to be leaking through all the time. The mucosal layer that acts as the primary uh, hurdle for things getting through, that mucosal layer also is controlled by microbes. And so if you're missing those microbes, you also have a very thin mucosal layer. You have an open barrier. Things start to leak through all the time. So in the case of rheumatoid arthritis, when you have dysbiosis, you tend to have a uh, diminished mucosal lining. You tend to have an open barrier, so you have lots of things leaking through all the time, and those things are driving inflammation in the body. At the same time, your communication between the microbiome and the immune system is dismantled because you're dysbiotic. We'll talk about what kind of communication they have. And then the third thing is because you're dysbiotic, you're not producing all of these important anti-inflammatory and repair compounds, so you can't repair all the damage that's happening.
right? So you have to remember that there's a triple whammy going on in people with rheumatoid arthritis. It isn't that you just had bad luck and all of a sudden you're like, oh, the gene turned on and now my joints are, are being attacked. Nope. There was a very slow and steady ecological dismantling process that has occurred that now leads to this outcome. The best part about all of this is you can reverse that process and repair it. Wonderful. Right. So I'm just wondering which which aspect of this should we go deeper in first? The the mucosal lining, it seems like th- this is where you, you mentioned the mucin one and mucin two, with so we've got the outer and the and the inner. The outer, all the microbes live. That's their home. That's their happy mucusy home. But then the lower layer of the mucus, they don't live. That's the protective layer. Yeah. So how can we establish a stronger mucosal barrier then? If all this stuff's getting into the bloodstream through that mucosal barrier, would it be through a gross approximation, a solution be just try and have a better mucosal layer? That becomes an, a very essential thing, right? So if you can't continuously produce your mucus barrier, you will end up with a diminished mucus barrier, which dramatically opens you up for leakiness in the gut. So the way the mucus barrier works is it's, it's, a, it's a layer that, that is built from the bottom up, right? So it, the, what's, what's actually secreted is that mucin 2-like layer, that thicker barrier-like structure. And then it's constantly being pushed up and then it gets to a certain point where there are microbes that eat the top layer of the mucin 2 and turn it into mucin 1. And then as the mucin 1 gets pushed up, it sl- the top layer sloughs off through defecation, right? So think of the mucus as a continuous elevator that's mm. continuously growing from the bottom and pushing up. It's exactly the same as your skin, right? Skin, remember, is a barrier that's being grown from the inside out. And then the topmost layer sloughs off. And the new layers keep pushing up. So you have to keep building the mucus layer. It's not like we're born with one mucus layer and that's it, right? The mucus layer is supposed to be able to turn over completely within 72 hours, right? That's how active it is. How is that done? Well, so this is where the rubber hits the road, right? So we have these amazing cells in our intestines called goblet cells. These amazing cells are designed to produce mucin. So they're the ones that are continuously producing this mucus and secreting it up and creating the entire mucus barrier, right? Goblet cells require something called butyrate. Butyrate is a short-chain fatty acid that's made by uh, these keystone species that digest fibers and digest prebiotics. They break down prebiotics and fibers and they convert them to butyrate and other short-chain fatty acids. This butyrate feeds the goblet cells and provides it the energy it needs to produce the mucus, right? So now you have the mucus factory and you're the fuel for the factory. But what's the on switch for the factory? What turns on the goblet cells to tell it to produce mucus? That's another interesting thing. As it turns out, a lot of the on switch is from microbes. So there's a bacteria called Acromancia mucinophila. One of the things it does is it's one of those microbes that's that's responsible for eating the top layer of the mucin 2 to convert it to mucin 1. When it does that, it, it turns on a gene called a MUC-T gene. The MUC-T gene is our gene that tells the goblet cells to start keep producing mucus. So you need acromancia 
to turn on our gene to tell our goblet cells to produce mucus, but our goblet cells need uh, short-chain fatty acids from Fecalum bacteroprosnitsi in order to fuel the production of the mucus, right? So now you start to see this beautiful symbiotic relationship, right? So you can develop a condition like rheumatoid arthritis if you don't have acromancia telling your gene to turn on. And then even if the gene turns on and the goblet cells are ready to go, if you don't have the butyrate producing microbes to produce butyrate for you. So if you're missing these two microbes, you have the goblet cells, you have the gene, you can't do anything with it because the microbes are largely in control. So now you can see that if you went through a process of antibiotics, poor diet choices, you know, living in a place where we get pesticides and all that, and these two microbes start to diminish, then our ability to regenerate the mucus becomes compromised, our barrier shrinks, our gut becomes leaky, now you're set up for rheumatoid arthritis, right? It's a process, and it's a process of dismantling our ecosystem slowly, step by step. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a factor of the modern world, right? It's not something that's inherent to humans as a species. You don't have rheumatoid arthritis in the Papua New Guinea tribes that are hunter-gatherer tribes and foraging tribes. You don't have it in the Hadza Tanzania tribes. You don't have it actually largely in rural people. You see a lot more things like rheumatoid arthritis and other autoimmune conditions in people in urban areas versus people in rural areas, for example, right? It's a it's a uh, unfortunate occurrence of our lifestyle. Mm. We'll get back on track in just a moment. Uh, just F FYI, I did five years of antibiotics as a teenager for acne treatment, and then uh, I do entertainment, uh, and I was asked to entertain the uh, Western troops throughout the Middle East um, in 2006, and I went over there, and the uh, anti-malaria protocol was three months of more antibiotics, and I took them, and, and when I got back from the deployment, uh, I developed rheumatoid arthritis. So. You know, the studies show a strong link between not just a recency of antibiotics and the development of rheumatoid, but a cumulative relationship as well uh, mm -hmm. associated with the development likelihood of rheumatoid. So I had both. I had five years plus another three months, and it was recent, and, and away we go. So um, just to sort of uh, give you an example firsthand of someone else who falls into this category. So yeah. Yeah. And, and here's the thing, though, you know, like the five years of antibiotics is really detrimental. You got microbiome. And, and of course, that's a perfect way to set up a disease process like rheumatoid arthritis. The good news, however, is even after that, you can actually recover your microbiome. Right. Because it's an ecosystem. And and the thing about microbes, especially bacteria, is you can never get rid of them 100 percent. Right. This is why all the cleaning products that that claim to sterilize things always say kills 99.9% of microbes. Right. They say that because they cannot say you kill 100% of microbes. There could always be one cell that's just hanging on, waiting for the right environment to multiply. So then it becomes our job to foster the growth of those few remaining. Uh, examples of your keystone species and so on, right? So, so one of my biggest um, goals is to ensure that we're providing people with adequate hope that even if they've had years of damage to their gut and then they have resulting chronic illness because of that, you can absolutely fix it and reverse it. And, we, and we'll talk about how you do that. Yeah, awesome. 
Rightio. Well, I think we're about a third or nearly half the way through the problem, setting up the issue here. Um, Let's continue looking at further the rest of the problem, and then we'll enjoy talking all about things we can do to try and resolve that. So you mentioned Acomancia, one of the keystone or most important species uh, in our our microbiome. Um, And we talked about short-chain fatty acids that fuel the goblet cells that then are able to produce the mucus. And and you mentioned also that there are as another difficult to pronounce uh, bacteria that helps to Cicillin bacteria prosnitzi. Yeah, yeah, I don't know that one. I can't say that one. Doesn't the tongue. <laughs> so that, and that, that needs to is, be. Yeah. That one is inversely correlated with with all kinds of inflammatory bowel conditions like Crohn's, colitis, microcolitis, colorectal cancer, and so on. So anytime there's inflammation and significant damage to the lining of the gut, that means you have diminished Cicillin bacteria prosnitzi. Okay. Okay, great. So now, taking this another step further, what happens then when we have this diminished mucosal lining and low keystone species and low other species that are difficult to pronounce, and we're then getting stuff entering our circulation or entering the bloodstream? Because to bring this back to the rheumatoid studies, we know that rheumatoid arthritis synovial fluid has identified bacterial components that are meant to be in the gut that are actually in our synovial tissues. And so we can talk about that and also really elevated levels of this stuff called LPS, endotoxin. So I'd love you to talk about what's getting into our bloodstream and uh, and what does it do when it gets there? How, How does it stir us up? Yeah. So, and and uh, in fact, when you have a dysbiotic gut and it and it leads to leaky gut, um, in terms of setting up the pathogenesis of disease like rheumatoid arthritis, you actually have a double whammy, right? And, and as usual, when the gut microbiome is dismantled, there's multiple things working towards disease. Um, so, so let me explain the first part as to what's leaking in, right? So, what can actually leak in is are things like bacterial components. So you you can get like bacterial flagellin, you know, actual whole bacteria to some degree, depending on how leaky the gut is, Uh, viruses, environmental toxins, you know, all of these things leaking into circulation. Uh, Now, most of what leaks in, about 85% has to go to the liver first, right? It goes through the portal circulation to a certain degree um, as much as it can. Now, it also escapes into circulation, uh, general circulation as well, and makes its way throughout all kinds of tissue. Whenever it ends up in tissue, your tissue has to deal with it by signaling the immune system to come to that area and and neutralize or deal with whatever that oxygenic substance is. Now, the reason why LPS becomes especially a problem, number one, it's because of the, the um, abundance of LPS in the gut, right? LPS is an endotoxin meaning it's a toxin that's generated inside the body, right? Versus an exotoxin is one that comes in from the outside. So an exotoxin would be like an environmental toxin or mold toxin that you might have in a home or workplace somewhere in in the room. You can get away from exotoxins. You can reshape your lifestyle to reduce the exposure to exotoxins, but there's nothing you can do to get away from endotoxins because they're produced by large numbers of bacteria in your gut lining. 
Now, you might ask the question, well, why the hell do we have all these microbes that are producing endotoxins? Well, they're not actually toxins when they're in the bacteria. In fact, the bacteria, many of which are your commensal bacteria, utilize the, these compounds, this LPS compound, for things like adhesion or communication with other bacteria and so on. The microbes aren't actually producing it to create a toxigenic effect. It just so happens over time, over the course of evolution, your immune system has used LPS as a way of identifying the presence of bacteria. It learns what LPS looks like, right? Because LPS represents bacteria. And so inside your body, anytime you have high amounts of LPS, your immune system thinks you're going septic because it thinks you are getting a huge influx of bacteria. Right. So so keep in mind that they're, they're, these are pattern recognition proteins. That's what we call them in immunology, which means that your immune system develops a capability of recognizing certain patterns, proteins on certain microbes. Right. That's how your immune system tries to tell the difference between one microbe and the other microbe. LPS being as ubiquitous as it is among bacteria in your gut your immune system has an innate knowledge of it. And in fact, to a point where your immune system makes a protein called LBP, LPS binding protein, that it secretes, uh, that it secretes inside your body to run around looking for LPS all the time, right? Now, why does your immune system do that? Well, because again, your gut barrier, your lining is only one cell thick, right? So it, it doesn't take much for that gut barrier to get damaged, and then trillions of microbes escape into circulation, putting you into septicemia, right, or bacteremia, or even things like your gums, for example, right? Our gums are a direct uh, conduit into our circulation, and we have 22% of the microbes in our body are in our mouth, and we have lots of gram-negative, toxigenic, pathogenic organisms in our mouth. So if we get trauma in our gums, those bacteria are flowing in by the billions into your circulation. So we have all these areas in the body that are susceptible to microbes flooding in. So over time, your immune systems develop this defense mechanism to look for LPS as a sign of bacteremia. So it takes it very, very seriously, right? So what that means is when it sees LPS, it elicits a massive immune response wherever it sees it, because it thinks there's trillions of bacteria that are going to be there. So now LPS leaks in because it's in the lumen of the gut. And normally if your gut's not leaky, what happens is it stays in the lumen and then it gets pushed out because remember the mucus keeps pushing things up and then you defecate it out, right? Or if you have a healthy immune system, you're also producing a lot of secretory IgA and that secretory IgA will bind and neutralize the LPS in the lumen. Right. So in under normal conditions, if you have a healthy gut, you can produce all the LPS you that you want in the gut, but it stays in the gut and you poop it out or you neutralize it. Right. But in a leaky gut, a lot of that leaks through. So now LPS is in circulation. The thing about LPS is it's a small molecule and it looks a lot like the lipid bilayer of your own cells because it's a carbohydrate head and it has these fatty acid tails that's very similar to your own cell membrane. So it's incredibly pervasive. It can get everywhere, 
no restrictions. It crosses a blood-brain barrier very easily. It ends up in deep recesses in your brain like the hypothalamus and causes diabetes, insulin resistance, right? It drives Alzheimer's. It's the number one driver of the inflammation that leads to the formation of Alzheimer's and dementia. So it gets into deep recesses of the brain. It very easily gets into your joints as well. It gets into your heart and creates myocarditis and inflammation in the heart, right? So let's say LPS gets into your joint. Here's what happens. So then immune cells in that area detect the presence of LPS. They freak out and they go, oh my God, we have bacteremia. Let's recruit the immune system to come over here and fight this. Now, the immune system that shows up is the innate immune system. Those are the first actors to any sort of immune battle, right? They are, and the analogy I give is, if you, imagine you have a giant house. Your body is a huge house. And there's hundreds of rooms in the house, right? And there's all these open windows all over the house. And one of the worst things you can have in the house is bugs coming into the window, right? And you've got a couple of players that are the anti-bug uh, people in the house. One set of players is really fast, really nimble, and the moment there's a detection of, of bugs coming into a window, let's say on the third floor in room 50, they can get there faster than anyone else, right? The problem is they have a blowtorch as their tool to get rid of the bugs that are coming through the window. So they get there first, they start blowtorching the area near the window to prevent not only the bugs that entered from doing anything, but also to prevent more bugs from coming in. Now, a bug expert is supposed to follow them, depending on which bug that is, tap them on the shoulder and go, I know exactly what bug that is. I have something that will only get that bug and nothing else, right? So you step aside, turn the blowtorch off, and I'll take care of it from here, right? Now, you can imagine if the blowtorch stays on for too long, you're likely going to burn the walls and burn the house down even, right? That's what's happening in most people's immune system when your gut is dysbiotic. Because when your gut is dysbiotic, the, the shift to the adaptive immune response, to the specialist that doesn't blowtorch everything, is also compromised and slowed down. So not only does the dysbiotic gut allow you to have leakiness, where LPS can leak through, make its way to the joint, now the innate blowtorchers are coming in and starting to blowtorch that area, that dysbiotic gut is also slowing down the response of the specialists that don't blowtorch the area, right? So now you get a longer innate blowtorching-like response in the joint, right? So here's what happens then. Because it's a blowtorch, not only is it killing and neutralizing the LPS, but it's also damaging your own tissue, right? So in that area of battle, you've got all this cellular debris. You've got bacterial components, you've got LPS, but then you also have components of your own cells that are there. Then the, the secondary immune system comes along to go, hey, what is going on here? What's the target, right? This is your adaptive immune system. That system comes along and starts looking at all the different proteins in the area to try to figure out what the culprit is and then elicit a specialized immune response against the culprit. Now, what happens because there's lots of cellular debris, often those cells accidentally pick up your own protein and think that that's the culprit, right? This is a what we call the bystander effect. So your own tissue is an innocent bystander. 
in this battle going on between a microbe and your uh, and your immune system, your own tissue accidentally gets represented as the target molecule to go after, right? So now you've got a your T cell or B cell that thinks your own cell uh, component is the culprit, and it starts mounting an immune response against that. We have a protection mechanism against that happening. Because that's happening all the time in your body, accidentally, right? But we have a protective mechanism. There's another component to the immune system called a Treg system that comes in and monitors this whole thing. And it has a specialized capability of recognizing our own tissue. And so if it sees the immune system accidentally going after your own tissue, it shuts it down and goes, that's not the target. Stop that response, right? Here's a triple whammy. That Treg system is largely dependent on butyrate and other components from the microbiome to function, right? So now, if your microbiome is dismantled, not only is your gut leaky, so more endotoxins are going in, you've got the innate blowtorches working longer than they should. When the specialized guys come along, they accidentally present and go after your own tissue. The regulators of that are also dismantled, right? So your chances of developing an autoimmune condition like rheumatoid arthritis increases dramatically. This is the same thing that happened in COVID with people who ended up with long hauler syndrome, right? The inflammation and the damage that occurred in these individuals because of the presence of the virus ended up presenting their own tissue to the immune cells. And now the immune cells for the next X number of months are attacking your own tissue even long after the virus is gone. And as it turns out, the people who are most susceptible to COVID long haulers are the people that had low diversity and low keystone species like Fecalum and Acromantia in their gut microbiome, right? Those were also the people that had the highest propensity to die from COVID and then also the highest risk for developing long-term long hauler syndrome. So their immune systems are dismantled. So when you have RA, it basically means that your dysbiotic gut allowed leakiness. It's also driving the blowtorch response too long. And it's also dismantling the regulatory component of your immune system. So if your immune cells do accidentally go after your own tissue in that bystander effect, it doesn't get stopped. Right? So triple whammy. That's how that's how it happens. Sensational. All right. Well. I think we've done enough justice to the problem then. Uh, I think that, um, be, just before we go on to solution, in my, uh, you know, attempts to understand this, uh, to you know, these complex matters the best I can um, and reading the science on this, um, it seems that the white blood cells or the leukocytes are Oxid are um, using free radicals to break down the uh, these bugs, if you like, the intruders, and in the process of doing so, are oxidizing the surrounding tissue. Uh, is that explanation just a different variation of what you've just given as well, or are there some differences there? No, no, that's the blowtorch. Uh, okay. Because it's non-specific, yep. right? That's the key. Yep. So, so what these leukocytes do is they come to an area. They know there's a problem in the area, but they don't know what exactly the problem is. So they bombard the area with things like prooxidants and and the complement system, right? These are all these immune tools that just carpet bomb an area. 
So it's going to destroy the organism that's causing the problem, but it will also damage your own tissue. Uh, okay, fantastic. All right, thanks. Right. Oh, so, and, and incidentally, yeah. we should point out so people understand that when you feel sick, right, the feeling of sickness, the fever, the aches and pains and all that, that's the innate immune system. That's a blowtorch component of the of the uh, immune response, right? And And that's why... Normally, when people get just a regular illness, a cold or flu, they feel like that for a couple of days, and then they start to feel better, right? And and the feeling better means that the immune system response has shifted to the specialist, not the blow torture, because what you feel when you feel sick is the blow torching, right? That it's your own immune system that makes you feel sick, and if that goes on for too long, then the res- the net result is damage in your tissue. And then, and then the potential for your immune system to start accidentally attacking your own tissue. Okay. Well, let's now get into part two, which is the solution here. Just to kick us off with some optimism now, because it's it, um, you know, we you've so eloquently described the problem. Uh, you said earlier something that really, really excited me, which is that it is possible to resolve this. So your level of confidence that we can get massive. Uh, improvements to these symptoms is very high, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. And and with good reason, because uh, we have good empirical data. Of course, we've been in the US in our various clinics, we've been working with uh, RA patients for a long time, but also we've done a, um, a, a pretty substantial study on this. Uh, it hasn't been published yet, uh, but I do have the, the manuscript from it. Uh, we did a, um, a 90 or 100 patient study for 90 days uh, revamping the gut, stopping LPS, the process we'll talk about. And we and we did not only um, RH factor, you know, rheumatoid factor yeah. measurements, uh, inflammatory cell measurements, um, you know, measuring um, movement and of the joints and so on. But we also did um, uh, MRI scans of the joints to actually be able to visualize the level of inflammation and damage that it's occurring, right? And And we were able to see really measured improvements in all of those things without compromising the rest of the immune system. Because of course, the allopathic approach is, oh, the immune system's gone nuts. It's attacking your own joint. Let's shut down the immune system. That brings about lots of other issues. So so to us, um, the idea was uh, just twofold. It's actually really quite simple. If people listen to the part of where the problem comes from, it starts to become obvious that there's really two things you need to do. Number one, stop the leakiness in the gut right? Because that continues to fuel the problem. Number two, stop the uh, the dysregulation of the immune system by increasing the regulatory T cells, right? Because even though you, even if you've had rheumatoid arthritis developed five years ago, right? That means you don't have the T cells that regulate the immune response stopping that response. So now you have a B cell that's continuously producing antibodies and all that against your own uh, tissue, it doesn't mean that that can't be stopped and reversed at any given point. You can upregulate the Treg cells, which are the regulatory component, have them circulate around your body for some time and start identifying the presence of these immune cells that are doing the wrong thing. That can happen, right? And, And it does happen. So we've seen it. So it's about A, stopping the source, which is the gut lining and the leakiness, and B, upregulating the Treg. You do those two things, you can make dramatic improvements towards uh, alleviation in, in the condition. 
The uh, reduction of the gut leakiness is something that we as a community, and I've pioneered a lot of work on this for many, many years. And I feel that in that sense, we've got a pretty good understanding of the science we've seen through our community, incredible turnarounds of people uh, with their symptoms by eating a largely plant-based diet, exercising a lot, getting lots of sunshine, monitoring their vitamin D, um, reducing stress, uh, restricted eating only between 7am to 7pm and so on. And, and you're going to educate us on why these things uh, can help in a moment. Um, but the Upregulating the Treg cells is a completely new concept to me, and I'm fascinated to learn uh, about how your laboratory uh, did that. Uh, perhaps in a moment. So, uh, the lots to cover. Should we start with fixing the leaky gut first? What can we? What, yeah. What's our best approach? So, so everything that you said is really important, right? And and I think the key to fixing leaky gut is a um, is a compounding of a number of, of behaviors, which is which is really important. So everything you said, increasing the diversity of your diet, that's absolutely critical, right? Especially in the plant-based side of things, because know that the vast majority of microbes in the colon are dependent on plant-based materials, right? That's where they get all their nutrients, their substrates to produce all these important compounds like butyrate and so on. So you do have to increase the diversity there. Um, intermittent fasting is is absolutely important. The reason is when you're in a fasted state, it actually increases the diversity of the microbiome. There are some microbes that can only grow when you're in a fasted state. And number two, that's what kicks on all these housekeeping genes, right? To start cleaning up cellular debris and repairing damaged cells and getting the lining back where it should and so on. So that kind of intermittent fasting is really important. Like you said, stress management. Stress is the biggest driver of leakiness in the gut, right? It, it, it's it's even more potent than antibiotics, that, uh, than leakiness in the gut, which is mind-boggling when you think about it, right? There was a 2015 publication in the Frontiers of Immunology. This was a meta-analysis paper, meaning that it was a study of lots of studies on the topic. Basically, what they showed was that stress-induced intestinal permeability was the number one cause of death and disability worldwide. Stress-induced leaky gut, right? Just like wrap your head around that. Think about how many hundreds of millions of people a year are dying from very preventable things, right? And so, so to me, I cannot overstress the importance of managing stress, right? And there's there's a couple of things I'll, I'll I'll mention about that, but but then the other part of it is getting outside, right? So we've we've kind of divorced our um, association with 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 nature, right? Uh, and the farther we get away from from interacting with nature on a regular basis, the more dysbiotics dysbiotic our gut gets. So as much as people can, they should be prescriptive about time outside in natural environments. You know, if you're on the coast, go to the beach. Uh, you know, if you're anywhere near forests and things like that, go for hikes, but be prescriptive about it. Give yourself something like 30 minutes, three times a week at least, right? And and a wonderful thing to do in the outside, which mimics how we evolved, is eat in the outside, right? So if you're going for a hike, for example, if you want to elevate the benefits of that hike, take an apple with you, take fruit with you, take a sandwich, whatever it may be. And then as you've walked through, 
what I always tell people is to be deliberate about touching things and picking up things and all that, right? Like I love seeing that with my kids. Kids are so curious. We're born very curious. And so we we sample the environment, right? We walk through, they're picking up rocks and sticks and touching trees and doing all of that. That's very innate to our behavior. We need to do that when we're in the outside environment. So do that and then sit down at some point and then grab a sandwich or something in your hands and eat it. Now, don't go sterilizing your hands before you do that, right? Allow the environment to be within you. That is really powerful for modulating your gut microbiome, right? So those things. Uh, let me mention stress real quick before we go on to other things. Um, mindfulness work is important. It can really help, right? But you, what you what a lot of people really need are psychobiotics. These are probiotic bacteria that, that actually change brainwave function and modulate how your body responds to stress. Because as it turns out, the, the deciding factor in the body that decides whether or not you're going to go way overboard with the stress response and continuously activate your HPA axis, which continuously turns on the stress response, is the presence of psychobiotics in the gut. If you're missing certain psychobiotics in the gut, you will continuously reactivate your HPA axis and stay in a basal anxious state throughout the day from a single stressor. It becomes really hard to shift from sympathetic back to parasympathetic, right? Microbes modulate that whole process in your gut, and these are microbes called psychobiotics. So we've we've uh, discovered a psychobiotic with uh, with uh, through the work of. Uh, the uh, University College Cork in Ireland, which is the uh, number one microbiome research institute in the world. And it's the work of, of uh, integrative psychiatrist Ted Dynan and a number of his colleagues. But these psychobiotics are absolutely critical because they dramatically reduce cortisol from experiencing a stressor. They dramatically reduce the perception of the stressor. They shift your brain waves into going into low frequency waves when you experience a stressor. They dramatically reduce all the inflammatory responses that stress creates, and they help your body turn off the sympathetic and go back to parasympathetic, right? They do all of this for you. So that really, really helps people manage stress because managing stress is something we all say, but it's really hard in practice, right? When your body, your neurological system is geared one way and you're constantly in that sympathetic state, it's very hard to bring it back. Right? So you can do all the mindfulness work, the meditation, all that good stuff. Fine. That stuff is good. But use a psychobiotic because that can really bring it back for you. Right. So can I so jump why. in? Sorry, can yeah. I jump in? Uh, just to emphasize this point, there was a study done on patients who were about to start biologic therapy for rheumatoid arthritis, and they measured their vagus nerve activity, which is related to you know parasympathetic nervous system or fight or flight state. And then they put them on the biologic drug for a uh, appropriate amount of time and then measured their response to the biologic drug and correlated that with their parasympathetic nervous activity and found that to an accuracy of 90% predictive uh, ability that those with the lowest vagus nerve activity or those in the most like stressed state did not respond to the biologic drug, meaning yeah. that the overarching, most powerful influence on whether the drug worked or not was how stressed they were. Yeah, that's it's absolutely correct. Mind-blowing. Yeah. Because stress creates leaky gut. That's the biggest source of leaky gut in the modern world, right? And it's profound leaky gut because it, it does it in two steps. 
One is stress increases the virulence factor and the growth of opportunistic microbes in your gut and throughout your body. So there are lots of opportunistic microbes who've been designed by nature to monitor the host stress response and hormones. And only when it sees your stress hormones does it do they express their virulence and growth factors, right? And that's because over time, they've come to learn that when the stress hormones are high, that means the host immune system is compromised, right? So they, that's when they rear their ugly heads and, and start, um, start uh, growing. And so lots of bouts of stress throughout the day is no different than taking a bunch of antibiotics throughout the day. It hits your gut over and over again and allows the growth of pathogenic organisms. Then there's a second way in which it makes your gut leaky, and that's cortisol. So cortisol, as you go through a cortisol curve, because you're experiencing a stressor, a, a portion of the cortisol dumps into the gut, right? Now, the reason it dumps into the gut in a healthy individual is that you have microbes that metabolize cortisol, and they send the byproducts of metabolized cortisol to your kidneys where you open up sodium and potassium pumps to increase fluid going into your circulation. It's doing that to increase blood pressure so you get more perfusion of blood to your brain and your heart. That's in the fight or flight state, right? So cortisol is trying to get you physically ready to fight or flee. And one of the principal goals of fight or flight is to get more perfusion of blood to your brain and to your heart, right? So you're, you're, uh, you're ready to fight or flee. Now, if that happens continuously, of course, it leads to hypertension. This is how chronic stress creates hypertension. It's through that mechanism. So, the, so cortisol is designed to dump into the gut, but cortisol also makes your gut profoundly leaky in a very short amount of time, both your small and your large intestine. And inflammation shoots through the roof when cortisol makes your gut leaky. And then that inflammation results in an elevation of IL-6, a compound called interleukin-6. IL-6 can go back to the hypothalamus and re-trigger the HPA axis, putting you back into a new stress response, even though there is no more an external stressor, right? So think about it. One external stressor will reactivate your HPA axis over and over again, continue to drive dysbiosis, make your gut more and more leaky, both through cortisol and through the growth of opportunistic microbes. So it becomes kind of nonsensical in a way to people that don't know this. If we say, hey, one of the most important things for you to, to improve your rheumatoid arthritis, your joints, is to manage your stress. And you go, what? What does that have to do with my joints, right? But this is the pathology here and it's when it's working through the gut. So that's why I say for RA people, a psychobiotic, which helps modulate all of that, can be so powerful. It's through an, uh, um, a direct mechanism for the driver of the condition. And the psychobiotic, is that something we can buy as a supplement or is it something that we can uh, stimulate through eating certain foods? Unfortunately, psychobiotics are highly specialized. And if you are a stressed individual, you probably don't have much or any of the right psychobiotic already in your gut. So you do need to supplement it. And this is what we're seeing in our studies. This is one of these organisms that we lose uh, good numbers of over time with behavior, right? And then you start to see these escalation of conditions associated with that loss. And in particular, anxiety and depression. The latest estimate in the U.S., is that as much as 60 to 70% of US adults have confirmed anxiety or depression. I mean, that's a massive number. 
right? It's it's absolutely crazy. So it's so prevalent because of this highly prevalent diminished level of psychobiotics. Uh, in Australia, you can get it through a product called Gutsy, G-U-T-S-I, that, uh, that has the Bifidolongum 1714, the most well-studied psychobiotic. I think the Gutsy product is called like Gutsy Mood or Gutsy Calm, something like that. And that provides you uh, with the psychobiotic. Now, on top of that, uh, oh, here's the other beauty of it. Psychobiotics also increase Treg. So the T regulatory cell I talked about, we've got a number of studies showing that that psychobiotic increases IL-10, which is an anti-inflammatory cytokine, and increases T regulatory cells, right? So that's absolutely another benefit of it. Now, spore-based probiotics also increase T regulatory cells, right? Uh, so taking in the spores as probiotics will get those T regs up. And then being in the environment and getting exposure to environmental microbes also increase, increases your T regulatory cells. So just those three things alone, along with all the things you're doing to stop the leakiness in the gut, you'll start modulating the gut and the barrier, and then you'll start modulating the, uh, the immune response as well. Okay, a couple of questions. Um, most of our audience is actually in the US and the UK and quite a lot of in India as well. So ah. if they're after a um, psychobiotic, do you have another recommendation? I know you've also been a pioneer with the development of multiple supplements. So, you know, feel free to suggest ones that your company produce as well, that people in particularly in the US, where yeah. the bulk of our audience are. Yeah, in the US, it's Zenbiome. So Z-E-N-B-I-O-M-E. -E. It's a uh, it's a Bifidolongum 1714 product. Um, and that's a that's the most well-studied psychobiotic in the world. I think we have about eight or nine published studies on it, um, and and I think four more in the pipeline that are being published. So it's it's super well uh, documented. And in fact, we it was developed by, and we work with the researcher that coined the term psychobiotic. His name is Professor Ted Dynan, um, and he wrote a book called The Psychobiotic Revolution. Um, so it's it's absolutely the best. It's it's a it's an essential product for most people in the Western world because we are we're so geared towards symp chronic sympathetic activation and stress response. Okay, beautiful. Uh, and I just missed the third way to upregulate the T reg cells. Oh, so so spore probiotics, probiotics, and then the environment, environmental oh. microbes. You're right. Um, you introduced spore probiotics quite quickly, and this is something that even I have uh, very little understanding about. I know that it's an area that you have sort of driven. Uh, not many people are outside of you know the work that you're doing are talking about spore probiotics, at least I'm aware of. Can you explain how they differ from regular probiotics and then how it can benefit us? Yeah, absolutely. To to make the, the, the story on spore shorter, um, basically when I looked at the idea of probiotics, my, my inclination is always to mimic things that naturally happen in the in, in nature, right? Um, we, we have too much in the world of medicine and biology and health where we're trying to outsmart nature and we're trying to intervene in an unusual way. And more often than not, that causes more trouble than benefit, right? And that's, that's uh, the pharmaceutical approach largely for things. There are benefits, of course, to, to many of those, but often it comes with a price with side effects and so on. So when I was looking at probiotics, I said, I asked myself, what is nature's probiotic, right? Like how did our ancestors 
interact with bacteria where maybe some of them became probiotics. Most bacteria you interact with in the environment and so on are going to go through the system, die in the stomach, get killed off, and then you're going to defecate them off, right? But there are some microbes that ended up with the capability of surviving through the digestive tract and then start functioning in the intestines in a in an alive manner. And so that's where the spores come in because they are ubiquitous organisms in the environment. They have this capability of forming this uh, spore um, hardened like shell around them so that when they're in the environment, they're basically in a dormant state because they're waiting to get back in the gut. That's their commensal home. So they're sitting around in the environment in this dormant state. Then let's say you pick them up in the environment, you swallow them. They survive through the harsh gastric system because of this spore coating. But the moment they get in the small intestine, they can bust out of the spore coating and start to go to work for you. And when we started looking at what the spores did, um, what we realized is as early as 1952, there was a large pharmaceutical company uh, called Sanofi Aventus, which is still a pharmaceutical company out there, that launched a probiotic product for the treatment of dysentery in, in the gut, right? So it's for the treatment of gut infection. And they launched a bacillus endospore to treat this gut infection. And the reason they can do that is because these bacillus spores have a capability called quorum sensing. And quorum sensing is for microbes to read other microbial signatures. And they have an innate knowledge when they come across a microbe that doesn't belong in the human gut or that is infectious or overgrown. They find that microbe, they sit next to it, and they use a number of tools to bring down the growth of that microbe. So they became a very effective treatment for dysentery, better than some antibiotics because antibiotics kill everything. These probiotics, like, like special forces, know exactly what the enemy looks like, goes in there and surgically removes that enemy, right? So that's the basis for what they do. Now, our ancestors inadvertently consumed these spores on a regular basis, and the spores provided that kind of natural protection to them. Because as you imagine, our ancestors, you know, we're exposed to tons of microbes all the time, even things from rotting flesh, for example, right? And if you think about animals, you know, if you look at what a lion is eating or many micro, uh, animals, mammals are eating on the ground and, you know, semi-rotting flesh or flesh that's been sitting there or, or plants, you know, that haven't been cleaned, they don't get sick, right? How is it that they don't get sick? And we, if we ate that same thing, we'd have all kinds of of, of food poisoning and so on, it's because they have from the environment all of these microbes in their system that protect them against infectious uh, bacteria overgrowing. Now, humans had that too, right? Uh, our ancestors have that. You see that in the hunter-gatherer tribes now. If we went and lived in Papua New Guinea like they do, the first meal we ate, we would be sick as a dog, right? Same thing as in India. If you went to India and ate like the villagers, you'd be sick as a dog because we don't have the resilience by microbes that actually protect us against those. We have this false notion that if you are resilient because you live in, in you know, Southeast Asia or India or you live in Mexico, you're resilient to the microbes there. It's not because of your immune system. It's because of microbes in that environment that actually protect you against those microbes, right? So this is where spores come in. They do this amazing thing. We hypothesize that spores not only could find and bring down the growth of dysfunctional bacteria, but we hypothesize that they could probably do the, the opposite where they increase the growth of beneficial bacteria as well. 
And so we proved that through a number of clinical studies. So what spores do is they increase the growth of beneficial keystone bacteria like acromantia, like fecalum bacteria, prosnitsi, and so on. And they bring down dysfunctional pathogenic organisms. So they rebalance your microbiome. And from that, they seal up leaky gut, right? We published the first study on a probiotic that stops LPS endotoxemia. We published that in 2017 in the World Journal of Gastrointestinal Pathophysiology. And since then, we've been the only probiotic that's shown to be able to stop LPS migration from the lumen into circulation, right? So the spores become a very important step here as well. Okay. So naturally, what is that probiotic? Yeah. So the, the one we pioneered is megasporbiotic. Megasporbiotic is the number one selling uh, clinical probiotic in the in the healthcare practitioner space in the US. Uh, it's also uh, available in New Zealand and Australia. It's also available in the UK. Uh, Megasporbiotic was the first uh, all-spore probiotic. And, and uh, we launched it in 2013. At the time, there wasn't a single other one out there. As you, as you mentioned, that's a, it's, a, uh, it's, it's a less known category of probiotics. But now it's the number one selling probiotic in the healthcare practitioner space. It's it surpassed all the other ones, and it's the most well studied. We've published, I think, fourteen studies on Megaspore. Uh, it's one of the most well studied. In fact, the rheumatoid arthritis study that I talked about earlier is a study on Megaspore and rheumatoid arthritis. Right, right. Which was going to be my next question is to, to talk about. Um, the approach that you took with the RA patients where you said there were 90 to 100 patients and you got great results. Did you do any dietary manipulation or stress reduction and exposure to green spaces or any of that? Or was it purely uh, a uh, uh, just an intervention with the megaspore? It was only the intervention of the megaspore. Now, and the reason you do that, of course, in a clinical trial so that you know, try to understand, narrow down what the effect is, right? But in practice, the idea is that you use the megaspore, but then you also do the other things, which then compounds the results quite a bit. Um, and the purpose to me of the other things is not to just increase the, the efficacy and, and the results that you get, but it also reestablishes a new ecosystem in your body that now makes you resilient to further development of rheumatoid or any other condition, right? One of the one of the dangers here that we face is that once you have one autoimmune disease, right, you it means you already have the the places that the pieces in place to potentially develop another one and another one and another one, right? So for example, a lot of a lot of women with Hashimoto's thyroiditis, uh, which is an autoimmune condition, it started off as lupus. Right, lupus tends to be one of the first kind of general autoimmune conditions that a lot of people get, and then they might end up with psoriasis after that, or thyroiditis, or RA in something more specific, right? Um, and that's because your system is geared towards this inflammatory damage, the bystander effect, the lack of regulatory T cells. So that process can happen over and over again in different tissues, right? So that all the lifestyle and other changes become so important so that you restructure your system so you're no longer vulnerable in that way. Mm. Okay, fantastic. Well, time has flown. I've just looked at the clock and realized that um, we should uh, summarize what we've learned today as best we can in a, and uh, wrap this up. I'm going to let, normally I do that. I'm going to let you do that. Could you list the <laughs> lifestyle, just bullet points, lifestyle things that we should do 
your highest recommend supplements that supplements that we should take and anything else just a checklist of all the things if you had a patient with rheumatoid arthritis sitting next to you go do this 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 that would be amazing yep so i would say the first thing i say to the patient is know that you will and can get better right that hope component is so important because remember we have this beautiful effect in the body called a placebo effect now the placebo effect is always talked down upon but but the reason it's talked down upon is because it's so powerful and in studies when we do clinical trials we have to do all this work to try to control against it the placebo effect is your body aligning the intention to heal itself and it can absolutely do that right and if you have that as part of your frame and your psyche then everything else you do will actually be enhanced so that's step number 1 reframing your condition right don't look at your condition as your identity a lot of people who have long term chronic conditions that becomes their identity right that's not you it's a temporary version you can get through it and you absolutely will get through it so set the intention first and reframe the mind the second part is a diet. You absolutely have to diversify your diet. I tell people that try to include a new plant or uh, fruit-based food, food into your diet each week, right? And maintain the previous one if you can. I go to ethnic grocery stores and all that because you'll find roots and tubers and vegetables that you don't find in your, in your regular grocery store, right? And I just add one of them into one of my meals in the week. You don't have to make a whole thing out of it. Just add one of them, right? And then the next week, try to keep that in there and add something else. By the end of the year, you would have added 30, 40 new foods to your diet, and that's going to dramatically increase your diversity of your gut. So diversify your diet. Um, start some sort of intermittent fasting. Find out what works well for you, right? Whether it's daytime fasting, evening fasting, you can play around with it to figure it out. Of course, number four is stress management. There are tools, there's meditation apps, things like that. Do those things, but know that a psychobiotic is probably going to be really important. So that's the Zen Biome products that most people end up having access to. And then you need the probiotic to seal up leaky gut. That's the uh, Megaspore. Um, you need a prebiotic to really feed the acromancia and all of the fecalum bacteria and all those beneficial microbes. I always recommend oligosaccharide-based prebiotics. I talk about uh, Megapre. We formulated an oligosaccharide-based prebiotic that increases butyrate production by 150% in three weeks, right? And we remember how important butyrate is for the uh, rebuilding of the gut microbiome. And then uh, we, we say exercise, sleep, those are non-negotiables, right? Because when you sleep, you repair the system. If you don't get adequate sleep, you're not going to repair the system. And in fact, your gut's going to be leaky. Exercise is really, really important to trigger myokines and other repair mechanisms, adaptive changes in the body. And then finally, reach out to somebody else that has the same problem and guide them and help them as well, right? Because it's community structure. To me, that's really, really important, right? And if you're doing that, maybe do it outside. So you can get outside, you can get some green time, uh, as you would call it, and, and meet with them outside. Maybe you find somebody that also is dealing with a similar issue. And maybe it's not RA, maybe it's a different autoimmune disease, but the process is the same for all of them, right? Because they're driven by the same thing. So get a chance to meet up. Hey, let's go for a walk once a week or twice a week together. Let's talk about what we're doing. Let's talk about what we're trying, how we're, what, what progress we're making, and then keep each other accountable. Right. And that that is a very powerful tool. That accountability to somebody else 
is a very, very powerful tool uh, and do that for each other. Mm, thank you. We have a uh, community support forum that where we have over 500 members who are uh, interacting and, and posting updates and sharing, and we have coaches in there, including medical doctors, and we support them. So we have that set up. So if people are now reinvigorated to go down that path and reach out, we can connect you into that platform. Kieran, this was absolutely awesome. Thank you. Thank you really, really appreciate it. Uh, and yes, if you come to Sydney, uh, I would love to uh, try and coordinate a uh, live uh, presentation yeah. training um, with you, if you would be so kind. Um, and how can people contact you or at least follow you online and watch other presentations that you're giving? Yeah, you know, I've, I've really been working hard to put a lot more information out there uh, and on education. So reach out to me on Instagram. My handle is Kieran Biome. So K-I-R-A-N-B-I-O-M-E on Facebook. Uh, a lot of what I do on Instagram goes on Facebook too. There, if you just search Kiran Krishnan uh, as a last name, you'll you'll find me there as well. Uh, I interact with people as much as I can on there. I get people asking me all kinds of questions uh, and I try to provide as much information and support as I can. And then of course, if you can see, see a, a qualified practitioner to help you through your journey as well. You know, the, the platform, the group, um, you know, assistance that you're talking about, the coaching and all that, so important, right? It, it's hard to do this kind of stuff on your own because there's so much, it's overwhelming. You need accountability, you need people to lean on. Uh, so the community structure is really important as well. And reach out to me and any of you, oh, and if you actually go on YouTube uh, and you just type in my name, you'll find hundreds upon hundreds of videos that people have very kindly uploaded uh, from interviews and all that, I, that I've done. So different ways yeah, to reach. That's how I found out about Kieran initially is on YouTube. He has so much knowledge on this topic. We have only just skimmed the surface. And some of the topics that we've spoken about here, he spent an hour talking about just as one aspect. So I hope you've enjoyed this interview. I'm going to put links to each of the references that we discussed on the show notes over at rheumatoidsolutions.com. That will include links to the psychobiotic, the Zen biome, the gutsy psychobiotic. The uh, uh, the only one I need to grab for you once we uh, once we end this is the Ogliosaccharide. I think I pronounced yeah, it. Mega Pre. It's called Mega Pre. M Mega Pre. I'll put yeah. links to those uh, on the website. Thank you, Kieran. This has been amazing. So grateful. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Rheumatoid Solutions. If you'd like to get more help to live an easier, healthier, and happier life, visit rheumatoidsolutions.com.